Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Exodus. should come as no surprise to you. And we pick up today in chapter 3, starting with verse 16 through the end of the chapter, and then into chapter 4 through verse 17. I invite you to read along with me, and if you do not have a Bible, please feel free to use one of the red pew Bibles in front of you. Again, Exodus 3.16. You remember last week we had the part of the scripture was regarding the burning bush and God calling Moses and providing him with his name, I am. We pick up on the conversation here. This is God speaking to Moses. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what you have done, what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is it that is in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, Neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother, Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. 
I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to say, what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. This is the word of the Lord. pray, God and Father, as we sit under your word, I pray that you would be teaching us, assuring us, and growing us. Be near all of us sinners as we wrestle with your word, and be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So Moses does not come off looking particularly good in this story. First of all, if you weren't with us last week, because like Brian said, we're picking up um, into this text a little ways, and we said we'd go back to parts of it. So um, God appears to Moses in this burning bush and audibly speaks to him and tells Moses that he's going to deliver Israel and use Moses to do it. And then in verse 11 of chapter 3, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now, all right first question you're like that's understandable in a sense you know i mean god is audibly telling you this but you know yeah you get that insecurity in that who am i to do this lord um but god says i'm with you and i'll support you in doing this and then moses responds again from what we read last week in verse 13 but moses said to god suppose i go to the israelites and say to them the god of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask what is his name then what shall i tell them and we talked about this last week It's not quite as strange as it sounds to say, but what's your name, God? But still, you know, it seems like he's kind of looking for reasons not to go. But God answers with this name of I am, and we talked about that last week. And then um, verse 1 of chapter 4, after God outlines again his plan to use Moses to deliver Israel, Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? God has said that they'll believe them, but Moses says, but what if they don't? God still, he provides these miraculous signs to him, and we'll come back to all the stuff in between these questions. Then in verse 10 of chapter 4, Moses said to God, Pardon your servant, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. God's given him these miraculous signs, but Moses says, But I'm not good at public speaking. And at this point, he's really talking in circles, right? God has already, like, moved miraculously and promised to be with him and told him how things will go. And he's still making excuses. But finally, God responds again, saying, look, I made you. You know, I'm going to speak through you. And then Moses finally gets it, right? (laughs) Read verse 13. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send somebody else. (laughs) first of all let me just say i kind of love this dialogue between moses and god because of how real it is like we've said before the bible is not about giving us saints that are perfect but human beings with all of the weakness and struggles that that accompanies them and there is a great example of that in this text moses meets with you know israel's savior god and his response is could you please just send somebody else (laughs) That said, in these responses, I think Moses is giving us a picture of doubt and how doubt works. 
When I was a kid growing up in church, I think I was maybe given an unhealthy sense of what doubt was. First of all, doubt seemed to me to be any question that I might ask or any uncertainty that I might have. And the solution seemed to be that if you felt doubt, you were supposed to kind of like, like, la, 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 you know, Jesus, la, la, or, or something and not listen to it. Um, and there's two problems with that way of picturing doubt. One is that it confuses doubt with honest questions. Um, and they're not the same thing. Inasmuch as the Bible sees doubt as a problem, it is not the honest questions of an inquirer or a believer. Doubt is not about the truth of Christianity, in a sense, but rather about whether we trust in that truth. So if someone says, like, man, I just, I don't know, like, does God exist, or should I believe the Bible? That is not doubt, and you should not say, stop sinning and doubting. Instead, you should um, give answers to that question. If you think about um, Thomas, right? You know, Doubting Thomas from the Gospels. Many of you will have at least heard him referred to. Um, it's funny, first of all, that he's the only disciple that gets named for his failing. I mean, it's not like denying Peter or something. But Doubting Thomas, um, he says he's not going to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead unless he can physically put his hands in the holes in his wrists and in his side. Um, and we think that Thomas's problem is that he wants evidence of Jesus's resurrection. Like, that's the way that the story was told for me. But it is not what the story is about, because he has evidence. Ten of the disciples, right, his closest friends all come to him and say, Thomas, Jesus is raised from the dead, and he's physically appeared to us, and we've talked with him, and we've eaten with him, and this is good news, and you should rejoice. Like, that's evidence, right? But Thomas still says no. Not because there's not evidence, but because Thomas seems to struggle with the very idea that God could do this. The very idea that God could raise Jesus from the dead. He's not, you know, asking an honest question about whether it's true, but he's wrestling with this question of trusting God. And also in that story, Jesus still comes to Thomas and lets him put his fingers in his hands. So there's that too. But, um, but this story that we read this morning in that same vein is not about Moses needing more evidence, right? Sometimes people say, like, I wish that God would come and audibly speak to me, and then I would really believe in him. And that is what is happening in this story, right? God is audibly speaking to Moses and giving him this calling. Doubting is not an honest question in this text. And then the second problem, I think, that I got from that way of thinking about doubt that I grew up with was that I thought that when we felt doubt, what we were supposed to do is to try to ignore it. To just sort of bury our head in the sand and not, and not think about it. And what I love about this story is that Moses asks these questions. And these are real doubts. These reflect a failure to trust God. But even then, even though he's being dumb and sinning, um, God still speaks answers to the questions that he asks. That's really the great lesson of this text, I think, from a human perspective. Which is that when we're filled with doubt... What we need to do is not try to ignore those doubts, but rather try to answer them with the truth. We need to let God speak to those struggles that we feel to trust him. And so what I want us to do then with the rest of this morning is look at not what Moses says, but what God says in response. In the ways that he speaks to Moses, he's really communicating three different truths that I think are meant to help us in our doubts. First... As God speaks to Moses, he reveals that he is working redemption. God is working redemption. 
that word redemption is a church word, I know. Um, and so specifically the word means buying back. But when we use it to talk about God's work in the world, what we mean is more broadly the sense of God's deliverance. His work of saving us from the powers of evil and bringing us into his kingdom, delivering us. And redemption in the Bible always has two parts. On the one hand, redemption is about defeating evil. God defeats evil. So if you look at verse 18 of our passage, God starts laying out his plan for Israel. And he says, the elders of Israel will listen when you come. And then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Now just a note about that because some people have questions because we have this sense that, it, you know, Moses comes and says, free my people from slavery. And initially what God says is just go ask for this three-day trip into the wilderness to worship God. Um, it's not that Moses is lying or something. This is actually initially the request in Exodus. And it seems like the reason God has this be the initial request is because Pharaoh says no, even to this relatively reasonable request, right? We, you know, we want this break just to worship our God, and Pharaoh says no, and that's meant to demonstrate his injustice and his tyranny. And ultimately, it's in judging that injustice and tyranny that the demand shifts from simply let us worship for a little while in the wilderness to you need to let my people go. But anyway, God says to go say this to Pharaoh, but God also knows how Pharaoh is going to respond. If you go on in verse 19, he says, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. And then verse 20, So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. God's saying, I'm going to throw down with Pharaoh and break his power and defeat his evil reign. When we talk about the Exodus and God redeeming Israel, um, we need to remember some of what, we've said this already in our series, but part of what stories like this one do is they give us the language and the vocabulary and images that then weave their way through scripture to help us understand God's work. Exodus is the original source of a lot of those images that God grows and expands over the course of scripture to explain what he's doing to us. And Israel's slavery in Egypt and Pharaoh's tyranny over Israel are two of those images. The Bible speaks of us as in bondage to sin and to death and to Satan. We are enslaved to them and they are enemies that oppress us. And therefore it uses the language of God delivering Israel out of Egypt as the vocabulary to help us understand God's ultimate work of redeeming us. He is breaking the power of those enemies. He is toppling those things that have us in slavery. It's that same picture of redemption. It's just blown up larger and larger to universal size. So God is defeating Israel in this work. Or God is defeating evil in this work of redemption. And then the other side is that God brings blessing. That's always the other part of what redemption promises. That God brings blessing and healing and life. So Moses starts the message to Israel in verse 16 by saying, Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. So God says, I see your suffering. And then he goes on and says, And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt. 
into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So God says, not just I'm going to defeat Pharaoh, not just that I'm going to bring you out of slavery, but that I'm also bringing you into this land of life and hope. You can really see those two themes of defeating Pharaoh's evil and bringing you into this place of blessing come together as God finishes describing his plan in verse 21. He says, And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. Which is just this striking picture, right? God says, I'm saving you from the Egyptians, but not only that, I'm going to somehow bring blessing to you. But the way I'm doing it isn't by you, like, beating the Egyptians and conquering them, but somehow by so showing my work of salvation and power to them that their hearts are turned and they will willing you, willingly give you their riches as you go out into the wilderness. All of which happens as the story progresses. God is both defeating evil and bringing blessing at the same time. In that work. It's important to understand that image of the work of redemption because that is the story we are within. In Colossians 1, here is how that work is described. It says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Do you see how that's drawing on these same pictures? We're being delivered out of that domain of darkness, that slavery and bondage of Egypt. And we are being brought into this kingdom of Jesus, of life and of light. That's the story that we're in, too, just like Israel is in an exodus. How does that story meet us in our doubts? Well, I think that one of the sources of real doubt, of failing to trust Jesus, is our cynicism our sense that we are already defeated and that nothing will ever change and that the world will always be terrible and so we might as well not even try. And that doesn't have to be some big, I describe that in very like big existential kind of emotional ways, but just like, like Jesus calls us to try to help people, but we think to ourselves, they're not going to change, nothing's going to get better. Jesus calls us to, to share the hope of the gospel with people and we think, They're not going to believe that. They're not going to, that's not going to change them. Jesus calls us to love and seek the good of our neighbors and our communities. But we think nothing's ever going to get better here. All of those are actually failures to recognize and believe that God is working redemption in the world right now. The beautiful hope of redemption is that people can change. I mean, no, we, we don't be naive about it, right? There's a healthy, you know, skepticism and stuff. Like, people are still broken and messed up. But there are broken and messed up people in our world and in our lives, and us sometimes, enslaved to sin, that are finding healing and life and being set free from their bondage. There aren't lost causes in the world. There aren't impossible cases because God is at work bringing redemption. And the hope of redemption means that God is at work through his gospel affecting that kind of change. God can supernaturally transform hearts through the good news of what Jesus has done. That is happening in our world every day. I meet people who have experienced that in their lives, and that can happen in the people that we know. And the beautiful hope of redemption means that we can work real good for people around us. 
that God is working through us to bring blessing to others. And we can make real differences in our communities and in the people that are in our lives. Now, in our age, none of those things only happen, right? Don't hear me saying that when I say that we have this real hope of redemption. Um, There are two forces at work in our age in the way the Bible pictures it. One of them is still the forces of this world in the kingdom of darkness. And the other is that force of redemption in God's kingdom. And so we're always going to see conflict, right? And sometimes there will be blessing and success, and sometimes there will be failure and struggle. Um, but, but at the same time, we say that, and so like in Exodus, right? Like Pharaoh, as, as God works redemption, Pharaoh's going to keep opposing it, right? I mean, that, there, there, things in some ways for Israel are going to get worse in the coming chapters before they get better. There's that conflict there, just like for us. But the problem is that we often move from that reality to focusing on the opposition, to focusing on the brokenness and the challenges, and we think those are the definitive things, when the definitive thing is that God is at work in the world. That even though in this age it won't perfectly or always work out the way that we hope and dream, that God is a force at work as well. He is moving in those ways that bring life and overcome evil. We should walk forward and hope in that reality, and that God is not just moving in the world, that he is stronger. That's the second thing he really tries to show Moses. Not just that he's working redemption, but that he's powerful in that work. He's powerful in bringing that redemption. So at the beginning of chapter 4, God gives Moses these signs. These signs that he's supposed to show to Israel, and then also later to show to Pharaoh, so that they can know the kind of God that they're talking about. Um, And it's important to recognize when God gives signs in the Bible that they're not magic tricks, right? It's not that Moses says, well, how will they know that you've sent me? And God says, go to the elders of Israel and say, pick a card, any card, right? That's that's not the point of these things that he's doing. Um, While they are supernatural acts, they're supernatural acts that are meant to symbolize and communicate things about God. So look, look at these signs and what they communicate. First of all, they're communicating that God has the power to defeat evil. God has the power to defeat evil. So if you start in verse 2 of chapter 4, Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. And the Lord said, Throw it on the ground. And Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Now, first of all, I love that he runs from it. <laughs> like, like that's again in, so in keeping with Moses's character in this story, but but we should recognize that um, when God turns this staff into a snake, right? This this the serpent, the snake is is the image of evil that you know that weaves through the Bible, right? From from Genesis chapter three onward, it's the image of those forces of evil at work in the world. It represents sin and ultimately Satan. And so then, when you look at verse four and what happens. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. So yeah, yes, God is showing his power by like turning a staff into a snake and back, right? But the point of it is that God is trying to show his power over evil in the world. He's saying, look, like this is, you know, this is this image of the power of Satan and of the evil forces of this world, and I will just turn it back into a piece of wood in your hand. That same image of God overcoming evil is in verse 9, where he gives the third sign. He says, if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. 
Now, it's important to notice it's not just water turning into blood, but this is about water from the Nile. The Nile is this river in Egypt that really is the symbol of Egypt's power, and it's actually worshipped as a god. It's seen as sort of like, you know, this like mother goddess of Egypt who provides Egypt's power and wealth and prosperity. And so Moses takes water from Egypt's sacred Nile, this image of Pharaoh's source of power and strength, and turns it to blood. That's hinting at the first plague, which is going to come a little bit later, and we'll talk about those. But it's also, again, showing that God is supreme over the powers of evil that Moses is facing. God shows his power in defeating evil, and he shows that he's powerful to bring blessing. If you look at the second sign in verse 6, Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. So leprosy is rare in our world, which is good. We, since the 60s, we've had ways to, to treat and cure it. Um, but it used to be relatively common. And in leprosy, what would happen is your skin would turn pale and it would develop lesions. And ultimately, your like, fingers and toes would actually like, shrink up into your body as they were eaten up by your body. It was a terrible disease. So when Jesus 
go to God doubting him. He replies to God after he gets these miraculous signs by saying, look, I'm not good at public speaking. I can stop. And God's reply in verse 11 is this. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouth? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. So God speaks to Moses about his power. What he's saying is, don't operate on this theory you have. Recognize the power that I have and trust in that. I'm the one who made your mouth, he says. I can handle what you're supposed to say. It's a really important distinction for all of us. When we think about faith and belief and doubt, between what we know up here and what we are knowing in the moment and here. When you think about what's happening in this text, God is satisfying every one of Moses' questions up here. Moses' struggle is not about information. Moses' struggle is the anxiety that he feels at the task that he's being given. We often operate not out of what we know to be true, but out of our anxieties and insecurities that we feel in the moment. And that's really what doubt is all about, operating out of that uncertainty that we feel rather than resting on the truth.
speaking at the climax. It's, but Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Now look at how God responds. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you. And he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. So on the one hand, God is not happy with Moses, right? And it's important when we recognize that he's about to be gracious to him, that Moses is sinning here. But if I was writing this text, verse 14 would read like this. It would say, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, fine, I will send someone else. And Moses died. <laughs> that would be my natural reading, but it doesn't say that, right? Instead, even though it recognizes that there's an appropriate you know, anger that God has because this is wrong, what Moses, what God says is that Aaron, his brother, is coming. And I love this. It says he is already on his way to meet you, which means that God, even before this conversation, right, in his foreknowledge, knows that Moses is going to be a fool, and he's already sent Aaron to, to, to help and to stand alongside him. Um, God provides grace for Moses' weakness in verse 16. He says, Aaron will speak
temper and yell at someone, they might not leave the church for 30 years. Um, and, and I recognize, just, you know, in my heart, um, that it is important. That, I mean, so that's part of why it's important to fight against sin, right? Again, like I'm not, but, but man, there are, there are times that I'm going to be short with someone or say something insensitive or hurtful or that I'm going to um, do something that, that, you know, that I haven't thought through or fail to do something important or that I'm going to explain something poorly or say something wrong and lead somebody into error. And I am sure that I will do that at some point, right? I, um, I'm sure that I have done all of those things. And the only way to get out of bed in the morning for me is to trust that God is bigger than that sin. And that's the prize Sin is destructive, and I'm not in any way saying that it doesn't really hurt and wound, but the hope that we have um, is that God can still work through us in spite of our imperfections. Often our doubts come down to the fact that we doubt that God could use someone like us for his kingdom, and so we don't even try to pursue it. And that is why. God still says, no, it's you. You are my chosen hero to go deliver Israel. 